Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome again, and it's a, it's a joy to be with you today as we start on this journey through Advent, this journey of expectation and anticipation as we look forward to the celebration of Jesus coming, even as we, we continue to long for and look forward to his second coming. And we're going to do that today. We're going to enter into this Advent season by jumping into the book of Matthew. We have scripture journals fresh um, from the, the, the press in the back uh, that you're welcome to pick up for a couple bucks if you have it to, to, to leave there, to track through. We're only going to be doing the, the first two chapters this Advent season, but that's going to set up in um, the other side of the new year, that's going to set up our continued trek through this gospel, the gospel according to Matthew, as we pick up the Sermon on the Mount for about 14, 15 weeks, and then, and then finish out in quick order the rest of the book. So, so if you want a place to write down, those have been great um, uh, utensils for, for some of us to use. We've enjoyed that. Just having a place you could scratch out notes. You, it doesn't have to be permanent. You don't have to feel like you're, you're, you're making a permanent mark on a, on a Bible that you want to keep forever. But if you just want to keep notes, those have been a good thing. So again, those are on the back. And that's what we're going to be doing in this series that we're calling A King is Born. Because that's what these early chapters of Matthew are all about. The, the birth of a king. And what we're going to be doing this Advent, each of these weeks, as we take on another chunk from these first two chapters of this gospel, is looking at what type of king, what kind of king Christ was. Beginning today with the, the, the idea that Jesus showed up as a rest for the weary. Which, if you're like me and just coming off of Thanksgiving, you need that right about now, right? You need that right about now after all of the, the chaos of the Thanksgiving holiday, not to mention what we're looking forward to in the chaos of Christmas. All the family getting together, and you're family tree coming together. I feel like I need that more than ever. So that's what we're going to be looking at today as we pick up in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. We're going to look at that, that family tree that Catherine sang through. And rather than sing through it again, I'm going to simply read it. And you can follow along with me as I do. Again, it's found in, cha in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. If you're new to the Bible, that's after all, that's those slew of, of names that you can't really pronounce, Haggai and Zechariah and, and Malachi or Malachi or whatever you want to call it. Then Matthew, right? Thank goodness for Matthew breaking that trend. And it's right there at the beginning. You could follow along with me as I Read again from verse 1 through to verse 17. Here it is. It says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. 
and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel. Shiltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. And Abiad, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliad. And Eliad, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathen. And Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just like Catherine said, what a family tree. So much chalked in here. So remarkable in so many ways. For those of us who know the stories wrapped up with the names. And yet in other ways, so unremarkable so normal, so natural, so commonplace and conventional, so ordinary. But your chosen way nonetheless to usher into this world the one who was anything but. And we pray today as we we seek to understand the kind of king that Jesus was, We pray today that we would see that with fresh eyes and bow before him in fresh ways, that he would reign in our lives today more than when we came into this place and that we would find in him, specifically today, a rest for our weary souls. We pray this in his name expect you to do it because of him. Amen. Behind every photo is a story, right? Behind every photo is a story. And I learned that lesson, relearned that lesson this Thanksgiving as I looked through some of the family albums that my grandmother has. As I looked through with her in her 
the nursing home that she lives in, in Monroe Falls, Ohio. I relearned that lesson over this break as we looked at many photos that I had never seen before of people that I had never met, never known, and places where I had never been, and yet for every one of them, even at 93 years old, for every one of them, this generally quiet woman who has for most of her life been content to sit in the corner and and watch everyone else do everything, for every one of them, my grandmother had a story. Because behind every photo is a story, right? You know this even if you looked at your own over this break, if you pulled them out to to show so-and-so what they used to look like or what you used to look like, if that may have been the case. That every photo, behind every photo is a story. And I especially liked it. One particular photo that my grandmother showed me, a black and white, torn edges, faded image uh, of two young individuals that, that I didn't know when I looked at them, but, but turns out that they were my grandmother and grandfather shortly after they had met. And she told me the story of how they met, a story I had never heard before, how, how he had wandered into their church one day uh, after serving in uh, the, the submarine service, uh, really right around World War II, wandered into to their, her church one Sunday with the sole purpose of finding a wife, and how my grandfather, you had to know my grandfather to understand the, the, the just depth of this story, how my grandfather, the pragmatic man that he was, put together a plan on how he was going to find that wife. He, he's looking up at the choir loft and, and decided to start with the soprano section and just work his way down the line. And he had three dates that he did not like and got to the fourth, which was my grandmother, and married her within the year. That was the story of this photo. The point is, though, every photo, behind every photo lies a story. Well, it's similar when we come to a passage like this, these, this slew of names that, again, you cannot pronounce, this slew of names that you, you, you can't quite remember how they fit in. And yet, for, for, for anybody who had ears to hear, behind every name, there was a story. Behind every name included in this list, because this was about rooting, just like photos do for us and family albums do for us. This was about rooting Jesus in the history of God's people. And so when we come to this, you got to realize that, 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 that these aren't just thrown in here, just happenstance. These are intentionally placed to recall the stories of God's people. So, for instance, the mention of Isaac, Jacob, and Judah and Judah's brothers are, are meant to recall for us that time in the history of God's people when he was making them into a nation, growing them despite all the odds that were never in their favor, 
growing them into the multitude that they would become, who he'd eventually lead out of slavery into salvation in the promised land. Stories of the slaying of Isaac, the substitution of a, a ram, of, of, of Jacob running away from home only to, to find the, the, the wife, actually wives that he was made for, from whom God's people would spread out in a foreign land. And we could really take the time to look at almost every name on this list as an example of God doing what God does best, pushing his plans of redemption forward through the lives of his people. But of all the names that anchor this genealogy in the history of God's people, there are three touch points along the way that are highlighted above the rest. And I want to just spend today a few minutes really considering the significance of each of these three and and what they tell us about the babe that was to be born in a manger. These three touch points beginning with the fact that Jesus is called the son of Abraham. Do you see there in first one, verse 1, chronologically, that's the, the first of these touch points, that Jesus is the son of Abraham, which just like the rest of the names mentioned in this genealogy is meant to recall for us the stories of Abraham, and particularly the stories of the promises God made to Abraham. Because if you know Abraham's story at all, you know that, that it's these promises made to Abraham that really made Abraham what he was, Right? Why? Because before God called Abraham and promised him anything, he was a no-name nothing who for 75 years wasn't known for anything. 75 years, a little like Colonel Sanders, if you know his story. By the time he was 65, had been fired from a dozen jobs and had just driven his restaurant into bankruptcy. But then everything changed. For Colonel Sanders, it was his his just happenstance falling into the business of franchising, which made him a worldwide symbol of Kentucky, right? But for Abraham, it was something even more dramatic. It was the fact that God himself broke into the the, the miserable silence of Abraham's life and with a few simple words invited Abraham out of the obscurity. Turn back to Genesis chapter 12 and look with me for a moment at where God's words to Abraham are first recorded. Back in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, where it says, The Lord said to Abram, before he was called Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, to the promised land. And here's the promise. God says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is the promise God made to Abraham, the promise that God would make of him a great nation and bless him to be a blessing. 
that in him, God goes on to say, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Which is quite the promise when you come to think of it, right? That through one man and one man's family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. I mean, just think for a a moment if God showed up into the mundane monotony of your life and decided, decided, declared to you that through you, not only was the world going to be a better place, that you were going to be some sort of Mr. Rogers, right, who's on everybody's mind these days, that you were going to be some sort of Mr. Rogers, who, who just making the world better. No, but, but actually that even more, through you, the world was going to categorically be made better. This sick and sorry world. Could you imagine? I mean, the only place I would have left home for would have been to make an appointment at the shrink. And yet, if you read on in the story, it says Abraham, without question, left. And despite the the doubts and disbelief, despite incredible difficulties and Abraham's own depraved attempts to to bring that promise to pass by his own power. Eventually, when Abraham was even more past his prime than when he began, when he was a hundred years old and his wrinkly wife was 90, God gave him through her the promised Son from whom their promised family would come. Who would have a son, who would have a son, who would have a son, who would be the promised one to save the world through his family tree. From whom that promised nation would arise, into which one day, some day, would be born another son in whom all the families of the earth would finally be blessed. In that sense, Jesus is the son of Abraham, even more so than Abraham's first son before him. Because again, Jesus is the son in whom all the nations are blessed. He's the conduit through through whom all blessings flow, in whom all spiritual blessings are found. And, And once more, not just for his people, but for all those who are found in him. Matthew has actually woven that notion into the very fabric of this genealogy with the inclusion of these four women, these four women that we, that we really took the time last year to look into their stories. These four women, which would have been a quite abnormal addition for his first century audience. Quite an abnormal addition for them to stumble over, and yet these four women, Tamar the Canaanite, Ruth, the Moabite, Rahab, the resident of Jericho, and the wife of Uriah, there in verse 6, most likely a Hittite, like her first husband. These four women are his way, Matthew's way of highlighting God's intent to bless the nations through the promised one. 
even though the promised one isn't even on the scene yet. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the one through whom the nations are blessed, can be blessed in a way they never could otherwise. I want to turn our attention, though, to a second touch point in this genealogy because it says here that Jesus isn't just the son of Abraham. He's the son of David, the son of David, the king. That's what David's called in verse 6, David, the king. And just like Abraham did for the first set of names in this genealogy, David anchors the second, this line of kings, with his story and his sons and the promises God made to him. If you know the story, this is after David had been given some rest from the the surrounding enemies and had dwelt in his palace for some time, while the Ark of the Covenant, the sort of throne of God or the footstool of God, depending on how it's being looked at at the time. The, the, the sort of throne of God, the footstool of God, was still dwelling in a, in a tattered tent that God's people had constructed during their wilderness wanderings. It's almost 500 years before. So, so David gets it in his head that he's going to build God a house of his own, a house like David has, because what right does David have to, to dwell in a house of cedar when, when God is, is dwelling in a tent? And you can, you can look there in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you want to turn there, I just want to draw your attention to a few of the details in that passage. David wants to, to build God a house. So, so David gets it in his head that, that that's what he's going to do, a, a, a build a temple worthy of God's worship. But, but this is what God tells David through a prophet named Nathan. Look at verse 5. He says, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house? No. I didn't ask for it, God says, and I didn't want it. This time period in the history of my people, I was meant to be wandering with them in their midst, protecting them from their enemies, doing what only I can do. God's saying, I've lived in this tent, not because I don't deserve better, but because it has allowed me to live and move among my people. Nevertheless, God says in verse 10, I am going to appoint for my people a place where I will plant them. Place verse 11, where I'm going to give them rest from not just the surrounding enemies, but from all their enemies. And moreover, look at, look at it there. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. You want to make me a house? I'm going to make you a house. How about that for a Christmas gift? A house made of bricks? No, listen to what he says. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, 
I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. He'll do it. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, God says. And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You want to make me a house? I'm going to make you a house. And I'm going to build it around one of your own sons. And your son will be the one to then make a house for me. The question, though, is who's he talking about? Solomon? Solomon is, in fact, the the son that rules in David's stead. The one who sits on David's throne and and the one who, who does, in fact, build a house for God. But there are promises here too big for Solomon to fill. Shoes too, too big for Solomon to wear. So that when Solomon comes and goes, the people of God are still left with a longing for these promises to David to be fulfilled. And to be fulfilled in someone else. Promises that would hang out over history through the reigns of Rehoboam and Abijah, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Joram and Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amos, Josiah and Jeconiah. All the way through to those devastating years when there wasn't even a descendant of David to keep David's throne warm. Until into David's city walked one adopted into David's family. But who could claim in a way unique from any who had come before him that he was not only the son of God, but God's own son. One from whom God's steadfast love would not depart. Not just because of God's faithfulness to him, but because of his faithfulness to God. Who would ultimately be disciplined with the stripes of men, not for any wrongdoing of his own, but as a shepherd on behalf of his sheep. To bring them rest from all their enemies. son of Abraham, the son of David. What, though, is the third touch point? The third touch point around which this genealogy is organized. After the the promise of a king fades from view, even if it doesn't fade completely. What's the third touch point? Verse 1 opens that Jesus Christ is the son of David, the son of Abraham. But notice, the genealogy is divided into, into three, not two. So what anchors the third set of names? Like 
Abraham anchors the first and, and, and David the second. The deportation to Babylon. Sounds so official, doesn't it? The deportation from, from which Ezra and Nehemiah led the, the return and, and Zerubbabel, who, who was from the line of David before them, mentioned there in verse 12, began the work of rebuilding David's city. And don't miss this, though, this deportation to Babylon, because this isn't just some throwaway historical marker in the middle of this genealogy. It is essentially just as important as the fact that Jesus was the one promised to Abraham and the one promised to David. That Jesus was likewise the one promised leading up to and even into the exile. This deportation in a foreign land. The one promised to lead God's people back. But let me suggest that Matthew is presenting Jesus as someone even more profound still. As not just the one promised who would lead them back to the promised land over which David had reigned and, and in which Abraham had sojourned. But actually that Matthew is presenting Jesus as the one who was going to lead God's people back to a land before all that. To their first land. That humanity had been in exile from since almost the day the world began. And let me point out two reasons I think this is what Matthew is doing. I know that this is maybe a little deeper than we would go with these names, but that's sort of what church is for, right? To go deeper together, to, to point things out that we might miss on our own, right? Let me just give you two reasons why I think this is what Matthew is doing. Because he's woven this too, just like the, the kingship of David and, and the blessing of Abraham into the very fabric of this genealogy. So first, notice in the title of this genealogy, where he calls it the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book. You know this isn't the first time this phrase has been used? Oh sure, it's the first time in Matthew. But in the Bible, it was used before. Way back in the beginning of Genesis, where twice, before Abraham had even stepped onto the stage, where twice we were introduced in, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, if you can follow that, where we were introduced twice to the book of the genealogy, to the book of the genealogy of the heavens and the earth, and then to the book of the genealogy of humanity. So that what Matthew seems to be doing in all of this, picking up on this title, this bookend on either side of the story of Eden, what he's doing is rewriting the entire history of redemption through the lens of Christ. Not unlike other gospel writers did before him and afterwards. 
rewriting the entire history of redemption through the lens of Christ, which means he's not satisfied to say that Jesus is simply our answer to being kicked out of the land of promise, but that Jesus is the answer to our being kicked out of the land of paradise. Matthew has second, though, also woven this into the list itself. And and there's a lot here you can go into, a lot that's been written on Matthew's use of, of names here, how he's changed some, if you can follow that, how he's changed a king named Asa to a king named Asaph. Meaning that Jesus is now functionally in the line of the, of the psalmist before him, not just the kings. How he's changed a, a, a king named Amos to a king named Amos. So now that Jesus is in the line of the prophets too. There's a lot you can go into here. The the theological purposes of of Matthew shaping this genealogy ever so subtly for his theological purposes, not under the table in a way that anyone in that day would have recognized and and, and understood that this is what he was doing, making, making statements about Jesus through it. But let me point out one that relates to this picture of Eden. Because if you compare what he's done here with what he, we have of his source material elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's not hard to see that he's also reworked this chronological list to make his theological point. An arrangement that, again, he does above board for those who would have had access to the same material he had. But arrangement, an arrangement that nonetheless presents Jesus as not just the the thrice 14, which the play with numbers back in Matthew's day, this is David's name numerically spelled out, the thrice David, but which presents Jesus as the seventh seven, as the Sabbath of Sabbaths, as the Jubilee, as the one who ultimately would not only crush the serpent's head and and be a blessing to the nations and, and build God's house and inaugurate God's kingdom, but who himself would do the work of restoring the rest for the weary. Which whether it's just coming off of Thanksgiving or it's just simply living in this sick and sorry world ought to bring a great amount of hope to those who are found in him. That Jesus has shown up to do just that. To be the son, to be the son, to be the son of the one who has saved this world from everything that's gone wrong. It's no wonder that all of history in the wake of these Gospels has been reshaped, reformatted around the day of his birth.
I'm going to leave you, though, with three thoughts then for this Advent season. Three thoughts related to the kind of king Jesus came to be. First, in relationship to Abraham. The fact that Jesus is our hope of blessing. And it's this. The question of who else are you waiting for? What else are you looking for? Because Jesus' own people missed it when he showed up. And yet this question is stamped on history. Who else do you want? Because Jesus showed up as the fulfillment of all God's promises. As the climax to redemptive history. And as God's answer to the world's problem. And yet, sometimes we find ourselves strangely disappointed with him. We find ourselves strangely looking for hope everywhere else. Like those who were disappointed when William Wallace came riding up to the battlefield only to realize that he was just a man like them. And yet Jesus isn't like us and we react the same. We go running after everything else. Yet he's so unlike us that he could possibly be, as he could possibly be. That what else would we go and try to find? If for whatever reason, the real-life version doesn't measure up to the myth in our own minds. Often, why? Because we want something else for ourselves. And yet, Jesus came to be the blessing, right? The blessing of the nations. So that if you want a blessing, if you want to experience the blessing of God in your life today, or someday feast on that tomorrow, it can only be found in Him. So you run after whatever it is that's got your attention, whether it's a, a stupid little app on your phone that is wasting your time or something much darker with some more serious results. Whatever it is, you go after that, you miss out on this. What else are you looking for? Because everything, that's anything is found in him. He is the, the son of Abraham. Second, in relation to David, that, that like it or not, we all need a king. Like it or not, we all need a king. Even in our democratic republic or republican democracy or whatever you want to call it, we all need a king. Perhaps in our country more than any other. Because we have proven, right, in our culture today, we have proven that without a king, everyone else spends the entirety of their life scrambling to get their place on the throne themselves. 
And we're just saying, if we're just being honest, if you get on the throne, it's not going to be good for me. And if we're just being honest, if I get on the throne, you can bet it's not going to be good for you. We need someone else who has proven themselves not only to be able to do what needs doing, like none had done before, but who will do it not on the backs of his servants, but on the behalf of his servants. We need that kind of king to take the throne for us, to take the throne away from us, that we might serve him and be freed up from needing to run the show ourselves. And Jesus is the one who came to do it. We all need a king in every area of our lives. Otherwise, we are left to rule ourselves. And in the end, that is not a happy situation. The son of Abraham, the son of David. Third, though, in relation to, let me just tie this to Adam. That if you want to taste now in the midst of the chaos of Thanksgiving or the growing chaos of the, the Christmas season or taste just in the midst of the chaos of life with all of its loss and heartache. If you want to taste the, the, the place that we were made for, if you want to look forward to feasting on it someday, there is only one in whom that can be found. In whom today you might have, no matter what, what winds blow your way, no matter what the earth does under your feet, no matter what enemies try to come against you, there is only one in whom you can find that rest for the weary. And let me encourage you this Christmas season where this world is going to get your attention in whatever way it can, with whatever commercials it can, whatever activities it can. It wants your attention. But let me encourage you in the midst of all the chaos of life to choose to focus your attention on the one this season is really all about. Son of Abraham, the son of David, the second Adam who gives us the chance to taste that rest for the weary even today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that just as you anchored the life of Christ in the history of your people, like Catherine said, that you foresaw this and foreordained it from so long before it ever took place that we would likewise rest in that and find our rest in him. That as the world crumbles around us and others flee to whatever this world is throwing at them, I pray that we would nonetheless rest in you and your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. for joining us. 
For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.